Wyoming hunter accidentally shoots himself while fighting grizzly bear. Canadian man's pocket knife helps him survive grizzly attack. Washington wildlife officials kill black bear that attacked woman walking dog. U.S. woman killed by bear that dragged her from tent in Montana. Two college wrestlers mauled in surprise grizzly attack in Wyoming. These are not captions for Cocaine Bear, Hollywood's latest artistic triumph. The headlines are from the last two, three years. Clippings I saved when I happened on them. There are plenty more involving black, brown, and polar bear across the north. Whatever thoughts I offer on wild bear protocol and bear defense aren't limited in their relevance to Kodiak, Alaska, or to the brown bear endemic to Kodiak Island. Hello, I am Tanya Ravis at AlaskaWriting.com. When I moved to Alaska in my 20s, I was anxious about the bears, completely green. In California, always out in front, we had killed off our grizzlies a long time ago. In Alaska, you'd read in the paper these harrowing accounts of bear attacks. I probably imported my anxiety into my writing. The description of Hank Waters in Ring of Fire, his face scarred by an old bear mauling, is borrowed from these real-time accounts. One more truly awful headline from 2020. Woman killed by bear while on the phone with dad and his young son watches. The bear jumps her while she's outside chatting with her dad on the satellite phone. Her nine-year-old sees it happen. This is the kind of nightmare I wanted to avoid, right, when we homesteaded on Kodiak Island. Our children were young. I felt responsible to protect them, to protect Martina, too. You could argue I had already put us into conflict with the bears by moving us to a wild land with a high bear population and no one to call for help, and I can't entirely discount the point. I did blame myself for locating the cabin inland near a junction of bear trails, a place previously innocent of human habitation. I did— but the few locals in the area assured me that the bears' restlessness, their agitation at this time was the worst they had seen in years. Why the bears were active and aggressive is a question I raise in land of bear and eagle, but in practice it didn't matter. The reality on the ground is what I had to contend with. How would I ensure the children's safety? What would I do in an emergency? Well, in this context, I was charged by a brown bear, an encounter which I introduce in episode three of the podcast. I think I remember Casey, one of the guys I'm with, saying, oh, shit, she's coming over here before we scrambled for safety onto the roof of this derelict cabin. I'm going back to those 40 minutes that Casey and Tim and I hunkered on the cabin roof while we waited for the angry bear and her two cubs to leave. 10.30 at night, Getting dark, but dark with that peculiar luminousness of the mossy northern spruce wood. The cubs, in a fright, had run up a tree. An instinct just as powerful had sent three grown men onto the roof of this old cabin. No one had meant anybody harm. We had merely crossed paths in the twilight, and here we were. The mother knew exactly where her cubs were and exactly where the men were, and she paced back and forth and huffed and panted and made a range of threatening sounds from deep in her throat. It's cold up there on the roof as the minutes go by. North, between the trees, the sky is pink over the darkening gulf of Alaska. 
Tim thinks she's angry, not at us, but at her cubs, bawling them out for running up the tree when they should have run clear of the danger and of the men. And with the passing minutes, she does shift her energy to persuading them to descend the tree and come away with her. Upright, she scratches her claws in the bark. Then on all fours again, she looks over at us and paces and growls and returns to the tree. Now Casey, he has a loud voice and a hacking smoker's cough. It aggravates the bear. When he tells her in this grating voice to move along, it does get her back up. It's almost like he's another bear challenging her. After half an hour, though, Casey's patience is worn thin, and after 35 minutes, he's done. I'm getting down. The heels of his boots rasp on the mineral paper as he scoots to the edge of the roof. I'm freezing. Go like this. Tim shows him how to draw his arms inside his T-shirt. She's not leaving. You go down there. You'll fuck up the progress we made. Progress? What progress? Shh. Listen, they're coming down. Indeed, they were. A snapping of twigs and a chipping of tree bark confirmed it. The boulder cub led the way down. The mother bear, she rears up and kisses it. By now, the bears have lost definition in the dusk, but you can see the cubs, one after the other, drop from the tree to the forest floor, and the family of bear retreats into the night. July 1997, this was, is a year before my family joined me at Cottonwood, and I hadn't yet made a habit of carrying the shotgun. I owned one, but it was back on the ocean bluffs under a pile of equipment, completely out of reach. During those 40 minutes on the roof, I could have decided that a gun was an unnecessary vanity, and I had the courage to live in bear country with that one. I did not. Mainly, I thought of the children, then four years old and one month old, who, with Martina, would join me here when the cabin was ready. And what I determined, shivering on that roof in the deep twilight, was to do everything in my power not to cross the bears in the coming years, not to offend or taunt or tempt them. But I also determined that my shotgun would never again be locked away out of reach when I might need it. Seemed like the prudent attitude, and looking back on my long relationship with the place, it was the right approach for us. There is another viewpoint in which guns are not needful in bear country and are even suspect. A guy named Gary believed this. Now, Gary had retired from the Coast Guard, and he was camping in our area while he contemplated living here. One day I heard two bushrat neighbors of mine talking about Gary on the VHF radio, I called them neighbors. These men lived a mile from me and eight miles from me. I would not have eavesdropped on the conversation, but hearing my name mentioned, how could I resist? Yeah, we've had lots of bears here too, getting kind of testy. You know my neighbor here, Tanya, a bear got in his inflatable boat and bit it up pretty good. That's the fellow that wears the bells. No, Tanya, he's east of me. You mean my friend Gary up here by the lake? You talking sense to him? Well, Gary says the bears are all friendly. I think he's pulling my leg. He doesn't have to cache his food because he brings it into bed with him. He better put a slice of bread on each end of it. You know what they say. When you dig in the bear poop, you'll find tiny bells in it. Dinner bells. Oh, I know what kind of bells to wear. Winchester bells. I had a logging job once where they gave us each a can of pepper spray. No guns allowed in camp, but the foreman said he'd look the other way if someone were to bring one in their bag. 
If you ask me, the only spray that works on a mean bear is triple-aught buckshot. I hear on the news where the bears love pepper spray. It's like catnip to them. And the neighbors shared a few more anecdotes like this before they said goodbye. You be sure to have your bells on. Anyway, the idea of going armed in bear country did not accord with Gary's worldview. A famed exponent of this worldview was Timothy Treadwell, a remarkable guy known for living with the bears of Katmai National Park across Shelikoff straight from us. I hadn't heard of Treadwell yet, but it was around this time that his book Among Grizzlies came out, and I later read it with interest. I'm going to return to Treadwell in a future episode in the context of language and how we talk about animals. But to keep to the point here, Treadwell didn't just question, as Gary did, the need to carry a gun in bear country. He was frankly contemptuous of people who did, and even of the use of passive protections like electric fences. I'll add, for the benefit of younger people who may not know, Treadwell and a companion later were killed by a bear. People develop their own philosophies of coexisting with the bears. Pragmatic mixes usually of respect for the bears and a heartfelt desire not to get mauled by one. Remember, when a wild bear hurts somebody, we send out a posse and execute a death warrant. You do you and the bears a favor by taking measures to avoid getting maimed or killed. There's a whole industry of selling bells and whistles and spray to people heading into the wild, and I don't presume to challenge it. I am too superstitious to be too doctrinaire about things. I don't know what I don't know, but I do know there's a lot I don't. It's always wise to question the accuracy of what we think we know. Here's an article from the Anchorage Daily News for June 18, 2000. I still got it. The headline, Bear Advice May Not Ring True. In preliminary study, grizzlies didn't flinch at researchers' bells. This got my attention. The field researcher Tom Smith was a bona fide scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey's Alaska Science Center. He rang bells and made a jangling noise, I'm quoting, almost as loud as a fire alarm. Fifteen groups of one or more bears walked past. Not one flinched, end quote. It does make you wonder. It makes me wonder. I was never a bell or whistle guy, but if bells don't work, I want to know it. I do believe in making sounds in one way or another, alerting a bear to your presence, if only by singing or calling in thick brush. Can't hurt, except as noise pollution. On the other hand, sound is unreliable. Jason, a character of mine while he's bushwhacking in bear country, plays Leonard Skinner's Freebird as loud as he can. He cranks up the volume, but out there in the wilderness, the sound hardly carries. What about cracker shells? A cracker shell is another kind of noisemaker. A harmless explosive shell you fire from your shotgun to shoo a bear. It works. I've tried it. Sometimes, but not always. One bear bolts, another blankly looks at you. One August, when a bear kept popping up in the fireweed along our four-wheeler trail, surprised the hell out of me every time I rode by, I threw empty cans into the trailer to make noise. I get up on the footrests and ride by, those cans rattling behind me like the beer cans dragged behind a Cadillac at a wedding. That was giving him fair notice, I figured, but I still carried the loaded 12-gauge on the front rack of the bike. (music) 
Whatever gives you confidence in bear country, what you believe will help to avert an altercation is what you do. I have talked about bells and not elaborate on guns another time. I wanted to lay a foundation for it because some people aren't comfortable with the subject. This isn't about cultivating an antagonistic or paranoid outlook in bear country. It is about respecting the biological imperatives that include, in you and the bear, self-preservation and the protection of your young. You don't want the incredible privilege of being near these splendid animals to end badly. There is nothing else quite like the primal wonder with which you watch a thousand-pound brown bear in the valley below the ridge or in the clearing by your cabin. You tap into this ancient bond, this mammalian bond that joins the two of you. A thrilling in your vertebrae, you are mainlining nature. Everything else stops, time stops, or it dilates and envelops you. Land of Bear and Eagle, now out with Hancock House, can be had at HancockHouse.com and at the usual online retailers. Give your local bookstore a try. You've been listening to Brown Bears Part 2, Bells and Whistles, an episode of the Denali Press Podcasts. Feel free to email ideas or questions to Denali Press Podcasts at Gmail. You can also email through the contact page at alaskawriting.com. I am Tanya Ravis. Thank you for listening. Thank you.